folks, listen up. If your fiancé tries to get you to stop experimenting on animals, it's important that you not only break up with them, but also that you take super villain levels of mysterious drugs. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> on it. Hey there, and welcome back, everybody. I'm Ryan Whitley. I'm Jessica Berg. And I'm Damian Smith. And together, we're Whiskey and the Weird a podcast where we enjoy and explore whiskey and weird fiction, sometimes even in that order. It's season three, everybody, and this season, it's alive! <laughs> We're going to be working our way through Promethean <laughs> horrors, classic tales of mad science. It's part of the British Library's Tales of the Weird series, and this one's edited by Xavier Aldana Reyes. Each season, we dive into a different volume of this anthology series of the weird stories of yesteryear by mostly obscure authors. And each episode, we bring you a full spoilerific discussion of one of the stories. So strap on your safety goggles, folks. Set those Bunsen burners to simmer. Because tonight, <laughs> we've got a story for you. Jess, what are we reading tonight? Uh, we are reading The Five Senses by E. Nesbitt. Excellent for E. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy there's gonna be a lot of rim shots in this episode i can tell you that much <laughs> well before we get to those rim shots let's talk about what's in our glasses damien what are you drinking this evening uh i'm enjoying some of maine's uh finest craft rum a uh, small batch distiller out of i guess it would be gardner maine maybe because it's sabago lake rum it's not so sweet that you need to mix it with anything that being said I took a few sips and I was like, I'm going to splash some Coke Zero in there. So I am just Solid. yielding to my collegiate <laughs> demands and drinking a rum and Coke tonight. But Sabago Lake Rum, really good. It's got that small batch like craft feel to it. And I'm a big fan. And it fits on Justice Shelf. Oh, perfect. Even better. As far as what I'm reading, I did just finish a book. Good for that you. I will refer to here <laughs> your board as The Puzzler. But I think that the full title is The Puzzler, One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles Ever, From Crosswords to Jigsaws to the Meaning of Life. Uh, the author is A.J. Jacobs. He writes a lot of obsessive books. We think. He wrote a book yeah, <laughs> called The Year of Living Biblically, where that's exactly yeah, what he did. Yeah, I read that one. Yeah. It's like, so, that name's familiar. Right. So this is this is one where he decides, because he's a big crossword fanatic and always like puzzles, he decided that he would reach out to premier champions of various puzzles, uh, including like Ken Ken and Rubik's Cubes, and uh, say, send me your hardest puzzle and I will solve them. <laughs> so oh. that's it. <laughs> okay. Inclu including like an enigma that's in the CIA headquarters. It's crazy. Any anyway, the point is, is it's just a, a variety of stories, uh, first person experiences that the author goes through of trying to solve the world's hardest puzzles and goes into a little bit about why, you know, puzzles are so intriguing to some persona. It's pretty interesting the 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 psychological motivations behind why people do puzzles and why a lot of it is fairly uh to be honest, a little masochistic. So um, it, it's a it's a cool book. It's very interesting. I will throw out this disclaimer that if you are not a fan of puzzles, it's not going to make you a fan of puzzles. If you are a fan of puzzles, then mm. you'll be like geeking out over the book itself. Can we back up for a moment? Because I think we skipped over fairly quickly something that might deserve more attention, which is that he received a puzzle from the CIA. Did he just send them a postcard and say, dear CIA, <laughs> send me your hardest code and I'll crack it? And they answered? It's this strong. 
sculpture. How, how does one get a puzzle from the CIA? <laughs> no, it's I, it's called Cryptos, and it was a sculpture that was left by an American artist who was really into cryptic messages, and so uh, he donated okay, this okay. incredibly complex, like think Da Vinci Code or or even more cryptic national treasure level oh, you know nice. uh <laughs> sequences nobody has yet to solve this puzzle by the way there's like five stages to it and nobody's yet to solve the entire thing and it's still sitting there uh and the artist is like once you solve it i'll let you know if it's been solved but it hasn't yet so you it's, haven't it's right sent there for on, it no i i haven't i mean you gotta you gotta get some special access it's in langley so <laughs> <laughs> Some steps Wild. you got to jump through. It's pretty cool. I mean, I would say if you have any interest in puzzles, it's it's a good and compelling and fairly interesting read. Pretty cool. Jessica, what about you? Well, uh, tis a season. So I have my first pumpkin beer. Oh, oh, no. uh, it's she hates shipyard. it. She, she dumped it out. It's, it's fine. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to be more responsible this year and buy fewer pumpkin beers. Uh, so I think in all of this, I'm chasing this idea that my favorite thing in the world is to have a pumpkin beer like at the pumpkin patch while eating, you know, like deep fried pumpkin fritters or whatever. Um, it turns out maybe I don't really care about pumpkin beer. I just really like to go to the pumpkin patch. But I still you just, have to, you just have to round pumpkin. Yeah, you just have to round it out. It's the it's the pumpkin trinity. Right. Um, so I think this will probably be the only pumpkin beer I buy to consume at my house <gasps> by myself. I don't need to buy 20 pumpkin beers to just sort of remind myself that like, oh, they're fine. Yeah, I call <laughs> <Right>. shenanigans. <laughs> so next week when I have yeah. a different pumpkin beer, we're just not going to bring it up. So I was going to talk about the new um, The Orphan movie which is a real wild ride. Mm -hmm. Instead, I was looking for a book to talk about for our If This Then That section. And then I pulled out a comic that I had read a few years ago. And then I just sat on the ground and read that through instead. So um, I'm going to talk about Upgrade Soul by Ezra Clayton Daniels, which is this kind of big, beefy graphic novel from 2017 or 2018, I think. And it fits into our mad science theme really well and it's also really really good like I had just um, imagined flipping through a couple pages to kind of like okay does this fit what we're talking about and it doesn't really but then I sat there and just read the whole thing again um, but it's then. basically like you know a couple that's in there like I don't know maybe 60s or 70s they have a lot of money and they decide they're going to undergo this like rejuvenation process to like restore their bodies and their minds and believe it or not, some mad science ensues and it has a what? lot to say about mind versus body, um, identity, family, cloning, question mark. <laughs> uh, it's really fun and like a thoughtful look at kind of like science and family and life and all that stuff. So um, if anyone is in the mood for something mad science, but really contemporary and good, um, it's called Upgrade Soul. So I see your rum and I see your pumpkin beer and I'm going to raise you a whiskey. This being the whiskey and the weird show. Uh, oh, I'm okay. drinking there, the there's the guild trip. All right, Padre. <laughs> there, it is. there it is. I'm drinking a very nice Glenlivet 15-year-old French Oak Reserve whiskey tonight. Um, wow. This is this is possibly my favorite Ooh, la la. iteration of the Glenlivet. There's there's umpteen Glenlivets out there, right? Some of them are very very pricey, but in the realm of what's possible for normal people to purchase on a whim, this is a little pricier than their standard bottle, but it's still in the range that makes it a good deal. This is a deep 
bodied whiskey. It's got a beautiful dark gold color to it with a lingering after effect. There's a sweetness and a depth there that is just <laughs> I not... like the after effect. That's yeah. my oh, favorite it just, part. <laughs> it, it, it just sits, it sits with you. There's probably a better word for that about finish. I think the finish is perhaps the word I'm looking for, but uh, it's a it is... lingering encasement of my tungal region that creeps up into my nasal cavities and creates nope, an like essence that. of what? No, but please, I'm just I'm just saying what it tastes. Please don't it, ever I'm... describe my whiskey that way again. <laughs> you like the term tungal region? Right. No. We're all sober now. <laughs> the show has just begun and we're talking tungles. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the Glenlivet 15 French Oak Reserve is a very nice whiskey that will not have anything to do with whatever region Damien's mentioning. As for what I'm enjoying, um, Necronomicon. I just came back from Necronomicon, which was an absolute blast. I've never been to anything like that before. And as a bonus, uh, I got to hang out with Damien, who drove down Hey-o. to Providence from Boston for Saturday evening at a lovely dinner. We came in third place in Lovecraftian <laughs> pub trivia. Walked yeah. away I'm with a couple impressed. of rare prizes, to be sure. Oh, no uh, doubt. I have no idea how that happened, actually. The questions were so impossibly hard that there was only this one dude in the room named, what was his name? Mick? Mike? Mark? Mark Mike Mason. Something Mason. And Mark <laughs> Mr. Mason. Mason knew everything. Uh, besides wow. that, the rest of us were, were hovering around zero for most of the game. <laughs> it's it's true. Uh, and the way that we got in third place, and I'm going to just share this secret with everyone. No, this is a, this is a great trivia. Damien, is, Damien pulled this out of a hat. When we got to the last question, and this is pretty common, uh, the host said you can wager up to 20 points. And literally every team said, well, time to go big. And that's when you got to kind of pull the reins back. <laughs> I said say, that. Damien had to pull me back. Yeah. So I was like, you know, Ryan, here's the deal. Everybody's going to do this and no one's going to get the answer right. Everyone's losing points. Let's wager the bare minimum and something magical happen. Folks, we got three answers right in this entire round of quiz, <laughs> and we still got third place because that's, of smart wagering. That's we, we came funny. in third place with 19 points. I believe the second place <laughs> team had 21 points, and and Mr. Mason had like 700 and some. So yeah, he, <laughs> he came in with a 666. He was uh, pretty that's solid. Great. <laughs> Uh, no, and I know it. not everybody can uh, always take time off to go to a, a con like that, but it was a blast. And uh, on the way home, which ended up being somewhat more extensive of a trip than I intended, I got to watch one of the movies that was recommended to me at Necronomicon. And so I wanted to share that with you tonight as well. And that's The Dead Center. It's from about three or four years ago. And it's mm. about a man who plays a, a psychiatrist in a hospital. And uh, he encounters a patient. You see this right up front. So this is not a spoiler. He encounters a patient who died, was autopsied, and then came off the autopsy table and landed in his psych ward. Now, the the doctor doesn't know that he's died and been autopsied. He just knows that he's in his psych ward. Uh, And the movie takes off from there. It goes to some really dark places. It was a surprise movie to me. I'd never heard anything about it. And I thought it was just phenomenal. So that's the dead center. Check it out. It's really enjoyable. Cool. All right. That takes us into our story tonight. The five senses by E Nesbitt, the daughter of agricultural chemist, John Collins Nesbitt and Sarah Green. Edith Nesbitt was born in London on August 15th, 1858. So she recently just celebrated her 164th birthday. Happy birthday. E. Her childhood was nomadic. They just lived 
all over Europe. I started to write down the cities they lived in and my pen ran out of ink. So all over Europe. <laughs> uh, when she was 17, they moved back to merry old England. And at the age of 18, she met a Mr. Hubert Bland. And three years oh, later, nice. she's pregnant <laughs> with Bland's child. <laughs> This this is this is gonna go some places, folks. So just just buckle up. <laughs> I can't get over the name Hubert Bland. It's yeah, like well, the worst name in history. It is, and and it it just yeah. Hang on, it's gonna it's All gonna right. get even hang better. On. Oh wait, let me strap in. Do it. Yeah, click. So, seven months into the pregnancy with Mister Bland's child, they marry, but they do not move in with one another. Hubert instead chooses to live with his mother. Now, okay. In the Wikipedia article about Mom, her, Mombert, the, the next Mom sentence Bert is Blaine. genius, and I want to throw a shout out to whoever wrote the Wikipedia article about Edith Nesbitt. The next sentence says, "Their marriage was tumultuous." I'd say so, right? <laughs> Under that arrangement, seven months pregnant with your with your baby, and you choose to live with your mom instead of me, right? <laughs> this is this is not good. Uh, well, it gets a little spicier. Hubert, as it turned out, had another pregnant fiance. Uh oh. And then Oops. poor Edith found out that her best friend Alice was also pregnant by Hubert Bland. Dude, Hubert's a, a fertile fellow. Hubert <laughs> is not all that bland. <laughs> At the end of this soap opera, Bland and Nesbitt remain married, having adopted the other children. And no. Alice, wow. the best friend, moves into the house to be the housekeeper. All right. Huh. Edith would bear two more children by Bland and Alice, one more. But we're not here to talk about Edith's complicated date night calendar. We're here to right, talk about her writing, and she was very prolific, being most well-known for wholesome children's books. Of course. Of course. <laughs> that tracks, right? <laughs> she published about 40 of those, and she had another 40 or so published, uh, which she co-authored. She was also famous for writing 11 novels for adults and many short stories, including a variety of ghost and horror stories. Her most famous kids' books were The Story of the Treasure Seekers, The Would-Be Goods, and The Railway Children, which was made into a movie. These stories and others fulfilled an important function in children's lit, moving them out of the secondary fantasy worlds of folks like Lewis Carroll and George MacDonald, and putting her protagonists into the real world, albeit with magical powers or objects. That became the go-to standard for the next umpteen decades for writing kids' stories. And we can easily see her influence on such writers today as P.L. Travers, who wrote Mary Poppins, C.S. Lewis, who wrote Chronicles of Narnia, and even mm -hmm. J.K. Rowling, right? Uh, the whole Harry Potter takes place in the real world, but with magical powers and objects. Even hardcore pulp sword and sorcery writer Michael Moorcock would pay tribute to Nesbitt's famous characters in one of his works. Uh, Michael Moorcock, perhaps uh, having a better name than Hubert Bland for Hubert Bland, but uh, we'll leave that alone. Her horror stories are where <laughs> I've encountered her before, including some famous ones like Man Sized in Marble and John Charrington's Wedding. Now, both of those have strong themes of sexual violence and domestic unrest, which makes a lot of sense now that I know her background. Both are incredible stories. They're both easily found, and they are absolutely well worth your time. Really good, really good stories. 
1914, her husband Bland passed away, and Nesbitt remarried one Thomas the Skipper Tucker in 1917. <laughs> she died on May the 4th, 1924, probably from lung cancer, the gift of a lifelong passion for smoking. She's buried in the churchyard at St. Mary's in the Marsh. The Five Senses was first published in 1909 in the December issue of the London Magazine with illustrations by Fred Leist. It has had six different lives since 1732, and all of them have been focused on the arts and literature. The version that published Nesbitt's story was helmed by Henry Beckles Wilson and was regarded as, quote, an important informer of popular literary tastes in the late Victorian and Edwardian periods by Australian critic Sue Thomas. The magazine dissolved in 1933 and was relaunched in 1954, and it's still going strong today with six issues annually. So there you have it, Edith Nesbitt's life, loves, and even a few of her words. Jess, I think you have our summary for tonight. We sure do. Um, a little warning, maybe um, the story mentions uh, vivisection a lot. Um, nothing in great detail besides pulling some wings off of flies and some injections. Um, but it is part of the story, and I bet we will talk about it. Our story begins with the introduction of our main character, Professor Arthur Boyd Thompson. Our man Arthur was a world-renowned scientist until one day he stopped sciencing. No one knows why he stopped, except for our unnamed narrator. As a little boy, Professor Arthur pulls the wings off of flies to see how they fly. His cousin Lucilla is horrified and makes little coffins for the dismembered dead flies. Gross. Arthur continues being interested <laughs> in animals and science throughout private school and into medical school, where he becomes passionate about what might be the creepiest thing to be passionate about. Vivisection. Vivisection. Mm. It was trendy then. On a break from school, Arthur meets up with his cousin Lucilla, parentheses, second cousin once removed, our narrator points out. Yeah, that'll be just, important later, folks. Just keeping it kosher, <sighs> just keeping it real. Well, it's love at uh, second-ish sight, <laughs> and they're betrothed. The two spend the summer hanging out, and Arthur wants to impress Lucilla, so he invites a friend from school. The friend is a great hype man for Arthur, explaining how great he is at vivisection. But Lucilla, quote, never could, never would love a vivisectionist. <laughs> Arthur heads back to London and treats himself to a whole bunch of animals to experiment on. Meanwhile, he's writing Lucilla three times a week, publishes papers, and gets his degree. Lucilla sets up the 1909 version of a Google alert for Arthur, where she immediately reads that he's still vivisecting. She finds one of his papers in some clippings. She writes him a letter. Arthur, she says, you've been doing it again. If you don't choose right, then it's goodbye and God forgive you. Arthur hops on the train and then walks 12 miles to get to Lucilla. She's described as beautiful, but frail and sheltered. Obviously, she should she could never know how important it is to chop up live animals. <laughs> she can't possibly mean he really has to stop. Well, she means it. Arthur tries to touch her while they're talking, but she's so grossed out that she won't let him lay a hand on her. He tries to explain the wonderful thing another scientist discovered by vivisecting some bunnies. 
Um, obviously, she doesn't want to hear it. Nobody wants to hear it. Arthur. Just leave it alone. <laughs> so Arthur leaves while saying that she'd never forgive herself if he stopped experimenting on animals. She'd despise him because he'd despise himself for giving in. So Arthur's uh. obviously been watching those... Uh, Who's that uh, UFC dirtbag who's been in the news lately? Joe Rogan. Uh, even dirtbaggier somehow. Oh, and Andrew Tate. Uh, he has a lot of TikToks about basically how to be the worst person in a relationship. So oh, that guy. Yeah, yeah. the one, right. that yeah, he's guy. He's pretty terrible. Arthur keeps experimenting until one day he's trying to inject a rabbit with something when he realizes he doesn't have what he wants. So he just jabs it with whatever he has laying around. In this case, it's something from a missionary who is working near the South Sea who brought it back as an example of how primitive and ignorant those heathens are. So the good professor is going to throw in a little racism into the mix, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Arthur injects the rabbit and something miraculous happens. He keeps working on the same drug for a full year to make sure his findings are correct, and they are. He's found a way to intensify sensation. But testing on rabbits and guinea pigs just isn't enough. Uh, he wants to test on a person, but when he tries to think of a person, he's horrified and decides he could only test it on himself. So he does. Alone in his mad scientist laboratory filled with beakers and test tubes, uh, but empty of any assistants or students, he gets to work. He makes assorted solutions with um, the drug of varying strengths and just starts injecting himself. Immediately, his sense of touch increases dramatically. Everything that he's touching and focusing on, he can feel in extreme detail. He declares it a success and takes an antidote. So um, one by one, day by day, he tests his drug on his other senses. He can direct what he's... <laughs> He can direct what senses he's working on by concentrating harder on that one sense, I guess. So if he wants super hearing, he concentrates on the nerves in his ears. Um, we get a brief montage of him trying to uh, trying out his new tricks, smelling things in his laboratory, hearing London, tasting gross things. Um, last up is vision. This one worries him a little bit. There has to be some side effect he apparently considers for the first time. What if he goes blind as he takes the antidote? It doesn't matter. He shoots up and gets supervision. <laughs> he can see the living parts of dust. He can see bacteria covering everything. And he realizes for the first time that it's actually better if he doesn't see how gross and complicated the world is. Um, but that pondering is pretty short-lived. He decides to take extra drugs and concentrate on all of his senses at once. Would that turn him from a mere professor into a demigod? Um, since this collection is called Promethean Horrors, I bet we can imagine what happens next. It does. Everyone's happy. <laughs> the end, what do you it's know? <laughs> well, no, not quite. Instead, he gets his lab in order, burns some incriminating paperwork, makes sure his longtime butler knows who his lawyer is to deal with his will. Very important to let Jeeves in on it. Yeah. Well, apparently it is because the next scene, our beloved butler is calling for another doctor because Arthur is laying unresponsive on his laboratory floor. The new doctor declares he's been dead for hours. <laughs> there is a funeral and we find out the conditions that Arthur put in his will. 
He's to be dressed in flannel and put in an open casket in the family mausoleum out on some family property. Uh, the coffin will not be shut. There'll be no lid on it other than like a piece of linen. He leaves the property to Lucilla and he gives his butler 200 pounds on the condition that he check on the body every 24 hours for two weeks. The butler, whose name is Parker, stays out at this family home for two weeks with the lawyer's clerk to make sure that he's checking on the body every day. Parker doesn't want to do it. He just pokes his head into the mausoleum one time without going in. The clerk doesn't want to go in either, so they both just say that Parker the butler did what he was supposed to do for two full weeks. Then we cut back to Arthur, laying in an open coffin, super alive. His senses are so heightened <laughs> that he can't, <laughs> he can't move or speak or even breathe, apparently. The drug paralyzed every muscle and he no longer needs to breathe or be warm or like have any human bodily functions, I guess. He felt the entire funeral preparation. He's awake in the coffin the whole time and now he's just chilling in this crypt. If he made such precise arrangements to make sure he wasn't buried in a closed coffin, why didn't he leave instructions for the antidote? He asks himself and all of the readers also ask. God, he slipped up there. big time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so laying there, he's able to slowly open one eye. He hears Parker come and go, but he isn't able to signal to him. He can just kind of open one eyelid. Even if he fully wakes up, the mausoleum is locked with metal bars. He could get out of the coffin, but he'd still be trapped inside. And with Parker not actually checking on him, there's no hope. Or is there? One day he hears Parker telling Lucilla that she can go in, but he'd advise against it. He has to go in, he lies, but she insists. She walks over with a candle. Arthur knows that he can open his eyes, but he's worried that if he does, Lucilla will go crazy because it's such a weird thing to happen. Lucilla cries, but Arthur stays perfectly still, pretending to be a dead body. She notices that something's up. Arthur doesn't feel dead, and she demands that he speak. When, she, when he says her name, she screams, and he panics that she's gone crazy. She runs to the door of the crypt. He sits up a little and decides he doesn't want to live now because <laughs> Lucilla's crazy. But it's fine. She's just going to go get help and some brandy. Arthur gives up his science. She and... picks it up from the guy that didn't want it when his head was getting cut off the last time. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just the same. You going to drink that, bro? No. Glass right. of brandy. So Arthur gives up his he science. He just winked at her. He and Lucilla become farmers, uh, but our narrator has heard rumors that there's a laboratory being built out on the property. The bottle of mystery drugs was broken during Arthur's final experiment, and he destroyed all of his notes, so there's no hope to recreate it. Arthur also forgives Parker, who still works for him, and they all live happily ever after, maybe. With everybody having everybody's kids. <laughs> you know what? Parker can live there, too. It's a whole thing. That's it. Great, That's the story. Great job, Jess. All right, let's get this one out of the way right up front. Which of the five senses would you enhance and you can only pick one damien i guess i would have to say sight uh one because if i feel like it's going and that stinks <laughs> <laughs> um but two i don't know i think that everything else would probably be too extreme like i wouldn't want to be a super taster i feel like that would just get a little out of control mm -hmm. 
because if I had one thing that was offensive, then I feel like anything that I ate that had an iota mm-hmm. of that thing would just ruin the experience. And super hearing, like, I don't know. I think that does more harm than good. Super touch. Ooh, that sounds that crazy. Sounds, yeah, you get like one like itchy shirt and you're just going to go <laughs> <Yeah>. crazy. <laughs> you stub your toe and your head explodes. Uh, yeah, I don't know. So I, I guess I would go with Sight. Sight would be my jam. Yes, what about you? I guess. I'm trying to think of it. Okay, if we're we're taking the drug and we're going full scale right i can't right. just take a little drug and right. just you get, can't like, control you got it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, just a wee every, drug every just what are you doing moderation. over there cutting the pill in half <laughs> so i think sight because you could always wear like sunglasses and kind of block stuff out mm-hmm. although i guess you could wear like earplugs hmm. i think i'm gonna go sight i've Follower. never well i've also never had good vision ever right like i got my first pair of glasses as like a a young child like what if you could just see that'd be wild <laughs> great <laughs> you trendsetter all right what about what about you Padre? Right, look look at the three of us peas in a pod i also sight. uh i would love to see in the dark i would love to be able to see through water like while swimming at the ocean you know without having to use a mask uh mm-hmm. i would love to be able to see far so away yeah uh, not with super sight super eyes um, Think about I it. You con- can buy you you can buy all the cheap tickets for like uh, sports events. Yeah, you can sit up. And sit you can sit up in the in the top row of the Oakland A's stadium, and uh, interesting things happen up there. Um, <laughs> all right, there's a story. Uh, yeah, look it up. Right. Uh, most importantly, I would never fear being unable to read, which would be important to me. Aww. So yeah, but you might sight. get so distracted, right? He's looking at everything, and he can see like bacteria. On his yeah, he he picked up some Lysol wipes after that one. I but just like like, uh, you're looking at the texture of the paper and you know like yeah, but you know what we hear like the concept of selective hearing and that we could be in a busy room and still have a conversation with people because we subconsciously and sort of autonomically tune them in and tune everything else out. All right, so I think you would eventually adapt to practice my super sight selective sight and maybe if this was like a pill you had to take daily for it to work you could get better at concentrating on specific parts of the nerves or it's like people i don't want to hang out with because i don't know they're you just look past them you look into their brains (laughs) i just wouldn't take my pill that day so they'd still be a little fuzzy (laughs) all right well getting into the story how far did this one go for you guys filling up your mad science meter or your (sighs) alembic oh wow look at that I would have to say it was a very sciencey, and this one fell. I mean, Nisbet's obviously a very prolific author and is very talented with the written word, but I can't believe that they're calling this a mad science tale when the entire mad science is a fixation on a concept, a, a behavior that a lot of people would see as like psychopathic now, just being a vivisectionist, but not really qualifying that with any science. As a matter of fact, the miracle drug that was discovered was just like given this really kooky backstory. Of like yeah, a missionary true. sourced it uh, in some crazy right. jungle. It was something. a disappointing was backstory, like, that's for sure. Yeah, and, he and didn't then there was there there was no, and, and then it was oh, I'm going to just mix it with some other kind of drugs and then just stick it in things. And it's like, <laughs> all right, so much for the process. And I get it. I mean, to some extent, that was science, but it just sounded a little hokey to me. The science was a worse version of the science in The Fly, where yeah. Mm-hmm. At least in the fly, he invented the thing and then experimented on himself. This one, he found the thing and then experimented on himself. It wasn't right. quite as rewarding. 
And what he, he you know, what he really needed for his experiments was that guy from the blue laboratory who had the dude locked in the vacuum. Oh yeah. <laughs> then he then he could have experimented on him. It's a good thing these supervillains can't talk to each other. <laughs> <laughs> their 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 disparate behavior is really sort of a benefit to mankind. I think. Yes. Yes. Well, I. I I, I don't think this one filled up my mad science meter all the way either, although I'm about to qualify that, but I'm going to save that. Uh, I'm going to save that for just a minute. Um, I do want to highlight what Damien said, because this was one of the reasons that I had noted down too, was that the, the thing that, that does the trick here, right. Was, was found by somebody else in a different land. Um, Jess correctly highlighted the, the racism sort of inherent in that part of the description, uh, I was when I was at Necronomicon, I went to a whole side panel on on how uh, the area of Southeast Asia has just consistently been used over the over the decades by pulp writers for mysterious things mm-hmm. and weird right. cults and yeah. all kinds. Yeah, all kinds of stuff like that. And somebody asked the question of one of the authors, uh, if we were writing a story set there now, how could we avoid falling into some of the same traps? And I thought one of the one of the great answers that was given by Nadia Balkan. Well, when you come up with your crazy God for the Southeast Asian culture, don't assume that culture worships the God. Maybe they're also afraid of it. I thought that was really clever. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So yeah, that, 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 that part didn't fill up my mad science meter too much. He, he doesn't do the science. I mean, in fact, the science that he does do, which is the vivisection, um, led me to a false anticipation of how this was going to end. I thought once he was like lying <laughs> prostrate on the floor that they were going to vivisect him. Yeah, it, uh, it, it and that that would have been a fit something. ending. Yeah, it it set up something that didn't that didn't follow through. Um, but that leads me to my next question, which is what makes or doesn't make Professor Boyd Thompson a credible mad scientist, in your opinion? I think for me, it's the obsession, right? Mm-hmm. It's not even the, you know, he tried this potion on himself. That's fine. We've seen other mad scientists do that. But the fact that he loves this woman so much, but he's not even willing yep. to stop cutting up alive animals. Like the the science of that is too important. And then he spends a year testing out this miracle drug. And it's just like the obsessive side of what it takes to get to a mad scientist. Mm-hmm is on display. I don't know. I would say that that was the only thing that qualified him to be a scientist to me is that he was practicing a method that he forewent emotion and focused on results and the process, even though that process was horrifically flawed. <laughs> it definitely put him in a more, scienti- yeah, a more scientific <laughs> state than not. Like, I still don't think he was a scientist, but that practice, I would actually say, and what you said kind of steered you away from believing him as being a plausible scientist was what I thought qualified him as one. I don't think it makes him not a plausible scientist. I think it tips him over from scientist to mad scientist. Sure. Oh, I, think okay. yeah. mad, I think you could be a mad, I think you could be a scientist and have a wife. I think if you're a mad scientist. Right. <laughs> and that, and that, Jessica, I mean, that's exactly that what sealed theme? the deal for me when, yeah. when he chooses his research yes. over yeah. Lucilla, then right. it's like, okay, now you're full on crazy. Yes. But it, it feels like, it feels like in all literary works, I mean, name another way that you determine that someone who is practicing science is a mad scientist. It's always the obsessiveness. The obsessiveness always. and the, I, when I was reading this, I was thinking a lot about um, like Spider-Man mad scientist villains because 
every Spider-Man villain has tested their scientific contraption out on themselves. Like, and that's why right. they get superpowers. Yeah, and that's why they have right. octopus arms or whatever. All of those guys. It's it's usually a science experiment gone wrong. The guy yeah. who's like a lizard or whatever. You know, the lizard. The guy. lizard. <laughs> <laughs> The lizard guy. Who, who was the one played that William William Defoe played? I was like William. He's a Green Goblin. Green Goblin. Green Goblin. Yeah. 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 I think I think that's right, <laughs> Jess. And and in his research, he pushes things, and this is what mad scientists do, right? They push things way past the limits, right? Way past where other people would be willing to go. There's um, also the fact that he's like trying to do experiments on this bunny. This kicks the whole thing off. But like he doesn't, he realizes like midway through he doesn't have the drug he wants, so he's just like reaching around and is yeah. like, oh, it's syringe full of something. Let's see what this does. Yeah, like, th- yeah that's not science, right? That's, no. that's not the way a scientist. Yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> it's, yeah. it's torture. It's torture. Yeah. yeah, she calls it out, you know, and uh, yeah. he's just like, right. no, 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 it's science, and she's like, no, it's torture, and he's like, no, it's science. Well, I fell down a vivisection rabbit hole while. No yes, pun intended. Tell us about vivisection. Uh, tell us about hole rabbit holes. Was... Oh, yeah. Okay, so this story came out in 1909. In 1903, it was what was called either the Brown Dog Affair or the Brown Dog Riots, which Ooh. was essentially started when a couple of anti-vivisection scientists, female doctors, enrolled in a medical school and watched some vivisection and then reported on what they saw. There was a lawsuit where they said that the doctor who was doing these vivisections was doing it improperly and basically like torturing animals. And there were some regulations about what you had to do. He was not following any of them. That doctor then sued them for libel, I assume. Anyway, all of this culminated with a statue to commemorate the dog from this vivisection that they watched that they put up in London. And then there were basically seven years of riots around this statue commemorating this vivisected dog. And so it was a group of like suffragettes and feminists and socialists who were campaigning to improve scientific method. And then a bunch of medical doctors and students who thought that this other group was basically campaigning against them rather than campaigning for better treatment for animals. And so there were seven years of riots where they're trying to like tear down this statue and burn down buildings and attack. Time marches on, but nothing changes. (laughs) It was wild. And so eventually they had to take down the statue and like hide it in someone's garage before they melted it down. If you're Uh, listening and you have the brown dog statue, would you write us and (laughs) let us know, please? Send a pic. Like another little one to go there, but they put it up like 75 years later or something. And so this was basically what was happening while she was writing this story. So this is where like. Oh, so this is like, like in of the times then. Yes. So the vivisection, when you're reading it, it's like, oh, wow. Okay. This is what's happening. We're having all these like actual debates about vivisection, but we're also rioting and burning down houses and whatever. And that's what I was like. That's the best part. (laughs) Well, that's what I was expecting in the story was then there would be some moral lesson about vivisection beyond just, well, he's probably going to do it again. Instead, we go into he experiments. So in all your deep reading about vivisection, why was it important (laughs) that the animal be alive? So that's what vivisection is. Your own. That's. Yeah, that's the live animal. But why is that important? 
so you can see how other how parts of work. a living animal mm-hmm. respond yes. and interact with the part that you're analyzing. Yeah. And so you can't you're do doing that so much about this, Damien. <laughs> I, I heard from Jess. <laughs> <laughs> we spend a lot of time talking about vivisection. So yeah, it's it's basically the the historic version of animal experimentation that still exists, where now we're testing specific drugs and chemicals on animals. Before we didn't even know what drugs or chemicals did anything. So there was a lot of that kind of Mm -hmm. testing, but also just like looking at digestive systems in action and other just like really horrible stuff. And there were regulations around how these were supposed to happen so that animals were anesthetized at least. But the case that started this, they didn't think they did that properly. And so that's sort of what kicked it off. Well, that's fascinating. I didn't know any of that. uh, And I'm particularly interested to know about the brown dog statue affair so that was really that was really great I, I just i just looked i just tonight. i looked up a picture of the brown dog statue and it it's is big. not the most depth piece of art no <laughs> okay let's not look like a pig i'm not gonna lie evening. yeah yeah for being a brown terrier it definitely looks more like a pig but so there's also i want to say that charles dickens was involved in this like he helped <sighs> he is everywhere he helped raise money for the statue I'm less convinced about that, but it was like they crowdfunded for this statue and then the statue had some like plaque on it about like, how long are we going to keep doing this? And then the doctors got mad because they saw the plaque that was criticizing everything. Anyway. Folks, look for Jess's book coming out later this fall. The History of Vivisection. This called is the amazing. Curious Incident of the Little Brown Dog in the Nighttime. <laughs> Oof. Oof. All right. Back to our story. On page 200, <laughs> E. Nesbitt writes this. Uh, This is in a conversation between Lucilla and Arthur, and the relationship is on the line here, folks. And it comes down to this. You know, uh, Lucilla says that you're either choosing you're either choosing your science or you're choosing me. His response is, and I quote, I can't set my pleasure in you against the good of the whole world. My question is twofold. First of all, do you believe him when he says that and thereby intimates that? pleasure, whatever you want to take that to mean, is all she is to him. And second, is this type of decision ever worth it? (laughs) (laughs) Could could you explain the second part of that? (laughs) Is it ever correct to say, I can't do this if you're in my life for the good of the world? I don't know. I mean, I guess if you're married to Ebola and you're like, I can't continue (laughs) Ebola because you just keep killing. I mean, okay. So the first part, I, I like looking at the pleasure. I don't think that he meant that. I don't think that it was interpreted or written to indicate that she was merely a source of pleasure. I think okay. it was she was the love, and his practice was the logic, mm-hmm. and he was really yeah, forced that's to how choose I read between it. Mm-hmm. the okay, two. Okay, yep. So I, I don't think it was diminishing the relationship or how he felt. I do think that you know she represented the emotional side, and the practice represented the mm-hmm. logic and the scientific uh, process. The second part, ultimately, I I don't think that there's ever that ultimatum that you would face mm-hmm. between a relationship and an outside part. Fundamentally, I think that it would be safe to say that strong relationships would be able to find some sort of a medium. And if a relationship is sacrificed due to an obsession with something, then the relationship wasn't as stable as it was believed to be. And that's also why the ending of this story kind of miffed me because Mm -hmm. they got back together with no consequence. 
and I just don't think that that's very feasible. So then again, that we're, thought, we're, we're talking talk about the ending, but <laughs> okay. I, I don't know. I, I want to disagree a little bit, Damien, because I think that there are plenty of, 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 of times where relationships are on the line and work is the cause, right? Every, every detective novel is the detective married. No, they're divorced. Because they kept leaving in the middle of right. the night to go look at a dead body. And yeah. I, I read this also as it's not just your work. It's that she's so against this specific thing. He could be a scientist and do anything else. Right. Like yeah, she right. even says. She's asking you him know, to stop this one thing. Yeah. There's other ways to get this science. And that was yeah. sort of the debate at the time was there's other ways to do this besides the most horrific thing that you could be doing and he says nope and then he goes and buys a bunch of rabbits and guinea pigs and cats and dogs so i think if my partner said no i love chopping up animals in the name of science more than i love you i would say oh okay i'm glad we figured that out now and not five years down the road but it's also like i i felt like that was really like blackmail-y like oh i can't believe that you would make me do this don't you care about the world don't you care about you know this other guy who invented the thing with the he's just like a med yeah. student he's yeah, not we, we little touch of the gaslighting going yeah, on just like, like a, how, how could you how could you be so against humanity are you thinking to, right, that yeah, you're, right. the you're hyperbolic nature of the uh, right of the objection right. yeah i encounter from time to time people that that are sacrificing themselves on the altar of of work. And sometimes that leaves, that leaves a family wreckage. And, you know, I think, and I also think we're in kind of a international conversation right now about the value of work and the workplace that, you know, since the COVID-19 pandemic has showed us a different model and, and now we're, we're slowly getting back to normal. People are wondering, is it worth it for me to drive 30 miles into the city to sit at a desk when I can do literally the same thing at home and save the Mm -hmm. money and not expend that time on on my commute? Yeah, but I, I don't know. I, I mean, we're talking about a few different facets, right? I think there's a general waning of a work ethic because the definition of a work ethic is changing. Uh, before it was do more than your colleague overachieve and that's the way to progress mm-hmm. that's the way to gain success and now there's like sort of an anti overachievement there's a just let's fred flintstone this let's show up <laughs> right right let's do the thing well, and then let's leave there's and- also no longer that progression of if you're in your job for three years you're going to get promoted to this and if you're right, in your job right. for two more you know like when that disappears the incentive to stay at your job and do a great job disappears right if you're not getting raises if you're and not, you're not if moving you're not experiencing ladder, that progression right all right screw that i am yeah. gonna do the minimum yeah there is there is the the um the decline the steady decline of the concept of like a 40-year career where right. you can go to no one place and you work like there right retirement mm-hmm. funds but funded. I, but i guess earlier when you were talking about like could this cause, you know, disruptions in relationships and could it cause the termination of relationships? And yeah, I'm not, I wasn't trying to elude the fact that no, it doesn't ever cause the split. I'm saying it's never ultimately one or the The, other. The only thing that's, that's right. Right. There may be something underlying there. There has to be more chinks in the armor um, because it's, it's very rare to find an otherwise stable relationship that has an impasse that just won't get overcome. I mean, that's why he's the mad scientist in Mm -hmm. the story, right? Right. It's because it was very apparent that this was a pretty reasonable, rational request and he couldn't do it even though he couldn't handle it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It would be interesting to read the story narrated by Arthur where it would become then the story of like his unreasonable fiance and right. how she's setting up sure. science, right? Yeah. Like this one is a little bit 
bit more like uh, Arthur, you're being a real weirdo. Any writers out there? There's your weekly writing prompt right there. Right? Yeah, there you we go. write the story from Arthur Boyd Thompson's perspective. And and then we write it from Parker's perspective. And then we write it from the bunny. <laughs> Nose crinkles. Nose crinkles. All right. Well, speaking about writing, let's talk a little bit about the writing. What stood out for you? It didn't stand out in that I didn't see anything new from E. Nesbitt that I hadn't read or caught in the tones from other authors specifically in mm. this volume. Agreed. I think this is kind of a mix of The Fly and some of those like girl detective stories that we've covered okay. where yeah. it's the mad scientist, but also this really dramatic relationship story. But it had some flourish of like the mortal immortal as well. Mm -hmm. It had some of that hyperbolic emotional mm -hmm. uh, testimony coming from it. And it, it helped that we had this omniscient narrator. Uh, but true, I wouldn't be able to pick another E Nesbitt story mm -hmm. just by the writing alone. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm going to be on the other side of the fence from both of you on this a little bit. But I think I also have the benefit of having read her before a couple of times. Okay. Um, so I, I acknowledge that up front, but I think Nesbitt's a great writer. I think she can really turn a phrase, but that she also doesn't let those phrases get in the way that she gets to the point and she gets that point across. That's where the Mary Shelley's of this collection, for example, are lost on me. Like okay. they're turning phrase after phrase after phrase. And we haven't advanced past the front door. Yeah. Um, I think that Nesbitt's descriptions are evocative when she writes, for example, uh, on page 202, he must work out in marble the form he had worked out in clay. I I loved that. Like you're in his workroom, you're in his laboratory, but you're also in his head all at the same time. Right. And I think that that was a, a, a brilliant phrase. Um, and then I loved the descriptions of the senses that were enhanced. I thought they were a lot of fun. <laughs> like I, I was, I was anticipating the next one. Like, Oh, what, what is she going to say about this? What is she going to say montage. about that? Yeah, it absolutely was. It was well-written. I especially liked the one for hearing. This is on page 205. She says, The sound of London came like the roar of a giant. Yet when he fixed his attention on the movements of a fly, all other sounds ceased, and he heard the sound of the fly's feet on the shelf when it walked. I just, I, I really, really liked that, uh, that aspect to the writing. Um, would I be able to pick out an E. Nesbitt story just from the writing alone? Ooh, I don't know. I don't think so, Damien. I think I'm going <laughs> to agree with you on that. I think I would be able to pick out an E. Nesbitt story uh, from some of the themes sure. um, that, sure. that I've picked up on over the ones that I have read, which, which do include domestic unrest. And even mm -hmm. though uh, sort of sexual abuse or sexual violence wasn't a part of this story, it, it was a part of at least two of the other ones that I've read. So oh, I think okay. I, I think I'd be on the lookout for that and then be able to say this might be a, an Edith Nesbitt story. Sure. All right. We we briefly touched on it just a moment ago, but I've got to ask about the ending too. What did you make of the ending of this story? Damien, I'm going to start with you since you 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 launched into that just a second ago. Yeah, I thought it was a bit of a cop out. I don't like the lack of consequence. I don't like the fact that there was this almost predicted and when you're talking about an increase in the senses but not an increase of like conceptual awareness or you know intellectual advancement that this person was a that this mad scientist was able to predict what you know the focus on all five senses would do and basically mm -hmm, prepare mm -hmm. himself for a reincarnation you know <laughs> except uh, for leaving a road. note 
Right. Yeah, I guess. I mean, he was like, I'm basically going all in. I, I feel like that was, you know, his last will and testament was basically just like, talk to my lawyer, uh, have people come see me, but let's just see what happens. So let's give it two weeks before you seal me off for good. Uh, I think I thought that that was a little uh, hokey. I'm going to keep saying hokey mm-hmm. because I just think that there were some elements here where I was like, come on. I do the teeth sucking, eye rolling like jeez. <laughs> As I'm reading it and the end, it was just so unfulfilling. Um, you know, I think back to like the secret of the scaffold where it was like, bam, the end. Cool. Right. <laughs> right. That was a good ending. Right. right. Uh, and then this one is just like, ah, come. all right. I so you guys get together and you go out and you start a farm, but you, you happen to, you know, the, the lab assistant happened to accidentally break the vial that had the potion and you burned all your records. So you couldn't figure out the proportions and stuff to do it again oh well time goes on let's see what happens <laughs> in the next chapter of the boyd thompson house estate i Jess, think it could have you? ended three paragraphs earlier so with the description of i've heard whispers of a laboratory being built yeah and then end story yeah like, oh okay so maybe not quite a happy ending that's at least something but then we go into how he forgave the butler and the what happened to the bottle of the drugs? And it's just like, okay, I don't need that. I, I I have an imagination. I can use it here to imagine that, you know, he he can actually recreate this, right? He burned his notes, but he knows how to get more or something. Like, you don't have to quite spell all of that out in the way that it was. Where would you end it again? Show, uh, show me on the, the page. Three paragraphs before the end. Whispers. Okay. Okay. I see. So I also have a strong opinion on where it should end. And it's, I I like your choice, but mine's even a little bit before that on page 213, there's a extra paragraph break after the phrase, he never knew he knew that she had come back to him. I wrote end the story here, exclamation point, because the rest of it is a voiceover and I hated it. I hated every minute of that voiceover, voiceover ending. It was awful. Everything Damien said about the ending. I agree. If you end the story, uh, there or even where Jess said it, it's it's a stronger story. See, now I'm going page 213. Speak if you can, she implored, just one word. Then he said very faintly, very distinctly in a voice that seemed to come from a great way off, Lucilla. And at the word, she screamed aloud pitifully and leapt for the entrance, and he heard the rustle of her cape in the narrow door. Done. Done. Yep. Done. That would be a better ending. Like, what too. happens? Does yeah. she ever come back? Does <laughs> we don't he know. is he able yeah. to like regain movement? That would have been a perfect ending right there for me. So what do you All think, right. fair listener? Where should the story end? Where should the story end? This is a choose your own adventure tonight. Anywhere but the ending. Choose your own terminus. All right. Well, speaking of choosing your own terminus, what we started with tonight was what enhanced sense you would choose to have if you were picking one for yourself. What I want to know now is. Which one would you inflict upon your enemy? Jessica. Smell. (laughs) (laughs) I see that as someone who I do not have a great sense of smell. I am allergic to everything. So I always just like, I'm a little stuffed up and can't smell anything. But then there are days where I can smell things. And it's just like, oh, my God, do people go through life like this? (laughs) Oh, it's terrible. The cinnamon Uh, roll is offensive. Well, it's just, yeah, there's just, there's a lot, right? I've and also, oh, I just a lot. like to throw out there that I have a very big, slightly smelly bulldog. So the less I have to smell him, <laughs> the better. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, I'd say, I think that would be the hardest, like, there's not like a medium, like you could wear sunglasses or you could wear headphones or earplugs to yeah, And also just remember if, if they had to tamp their sense of smell, they wouldn't have a sense of taste either. Right. And even if you closed your nose, like you're, you still get some smell just because you're breathing yeah. anyway 
smell sounds terrible mine's That's mine's easy my touch if you made Ooh. someone extra sensitive to all <laughs> forms of touch like that would just make their life a living hell i'm period. going with i don't taste. even have to explain it i mean think about it <laughs> you like, just what? know i'm going with taste we all have different ones here this is good so so the tasting like you could never get that bad taste out of your mouth you would be afraid of tasting anything new even good flavors would be so bold and powerful that it would it would overwhelm you it would ruin eating and that would just be awful. I don't know. It would just turn you into a Silicon Valley tech bro. You'd start drinking Huel or, uh, you know, Soylent and you would just call it a day. <laughs> also awful. <Yeah. laughs> All right. So we've got touch, we've got smell, and we've got taste for what we'd inflict on our worst enemies. Uh, did the scare <laughs> hold up? I'm going to jump in here and say, no, this one wasn't scary really at all. I don't think it was intended to be scary, though. Um, it was a, a fun mad science story for me to read, but I, I can't even think about it from the perspective of one of the characters, maybe Lucilla's, but not. it's not really a scary story. No, it was so not scary that I couldn't even remember one of the main characters' names for the entirety <laughs> of this podcast recap. Right. No, it was I, not scary to me at all. And no, not really any tension either, because- right. Even the introduction is like he stopped doing science, but it wasn't like he died. So you you don't actually have any worry that he's going to die. I think the moment of tension is how long is he going to have to be in the crypt? Mm -hmm. Will Lucilla get scared to death if he opens his eyes? Like those are pretty minor yeah. when you sort of get the info up front that he's he's still alive somewhere. And we can ignore the fact that vivisection was brought up and that is like a crutch. It's the truffle oil for terror and macabre and horror. Because if you talk about, you know, violating and tort physically torturing animals, you can pretty much get anyone to feel a little. Right. And it was, right. this was and it was brushed under the under the rug. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was just a part of it, but not a scary part. Just sort right. of a, like. And Here's it wasn't talked happening. about in detail. It was talked about in like the pre, the pre and the post, but right. not, I mean, it, so you could have walked in there and done a lot more if you want to make this scary. I just. Well, and even like, I'm pretty sensitive about animal stuff. Yeah, me too. Generally. And like I was reading and I was like, all right, well, that's gross. I don't want to hear about what happened to the rabbit, but it's, yeah, they're more of like ideas that are out there that these things are happening than right. anything that affects the plot other than Lucilla doesn't want him to keep doing it, which, okay. Yeah. Fair. Who's All right, Jess, so you mean what's Priscilla? your whiskey rating? Priscilla. Okay, so I went back and forth, but I have it as a three. I didn't love all of the writing, but it had enough, like, we didn't even talk about, like, funny bits. Like, there were some, like, funny yeah. dialogue mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. just enough humor in it. It was worth reading. I enjoyed reading it. I've read it a few times. I thought for a minute that I had read the man-sized in marble, mm -hmm. or what, but then when I read a summary of it, I don't know if I had. So... I feel like I've potentially read something else of hers, yeah. but again, I, I wouldn't pick this one out of a lineup and I couldn't remember anything. And I, I wouldn't pick this one to be your first Edith Nesbitt story either. And and I would love to talk to both of you after you've read Man Sized in Marble and John Charrington's Wedding. I, I, I suspect that your opinion of Edith Nesbitt will go up. Dee, That's what fair. about you? Um, coming in with a two banger. I just, I, I, the story didn't do much for me. It wasn't scary. It wasn't mad science-y. There was a lot of hokiness, as I think I've mentioned. That's today's secret word, Conky 2000. <laughs> so I don't know. It was just unfulfilling and mm -hmm. from Nave to Chops. So I wasn't a big fan, and I'm going to come in at two fingers. Okay. We're all over the map on this one. I've got four fingers, and again, I'm going to You're gonna insane. Leave. You are insane. I'm, I'm <laughs> quitting this podcast. There's no way this is a four-finger story. <laughs> I liked it. I liked the story. Uh, I, I am going to lean a little payroll. bit. 
Yeah, I am gonna. She's dead. Um, I am gonna, <laughs> gonna lean a little bit on the she's fact got that a I bunch like... of descendants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> Speaking of rabbits, um, no, I am gonna lean on the fact that I have read Nesbit stories before, and I have largely really enjoyed them. So I was predisposed to like this one. I think that if All I right. hadn't read a Nesbit story before, I would come in lower. But uh, I am who I am, and I've done what I've done. So four fingers of whiskey. I enjoyed it. I like the writing first and foremost. I find it memorable. I was oddly moved by the scene that Jess just so casually brushed off a moment ago where he's pondering in the crypt whether if he moves or opens his eyes <laughs> that she will see a dead person instead of her I lover. I thought that was very funny. I, yeah, that was see, I thought that was too. emotional and I was like, no, that's, that's he's a just like, wise he's like, thing to I've, think about. He's like, I've really sold this. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen <laughs> right. here. <laughs> like sitting there like, okay, don't freak her out. Don't freak her out. Don't freak her out. I am dead, though. I should be dead, (laughs) pal. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So four fingers of whiskey for me. So we've got a two, a three, and a four tonight, folks. This might be the most varied story we've read. uh, We've rated on all of the podcast seasons of Whiskey and the Weird. That takes us to our If This Then That. I just want to jump in real quick and say, if you liked this story, then just turn the page. Because Howard Phillips' Lovecraft story, From Beyond, is the next story which would be my if this, then that, if that wasn't in this collection. But it is, and we're going to cover it later, so we're not going to talk about that right now. Damien, I think, has a better if this, then that. Well, better is a bit subjective, (laughs) but let's uh, say a little more modern, a little more contemporary. And it was a book that got adapted into a film in 2011 by Neil Berger, starring the one, the only... Bradley Cooper. That film is limitless about a man who is just a normal average Joe until he takes a mysterious pill that essentially is an experimental drug that unlocks 100% of your mind's processing power. You know, the wives tell that we only use like what 1% of our brain. Well, now he's using 100% of his brain. So in addition to amplifying all the senses, he also has unlock computational abilities beyond the most advanced supercomputer in the world at the time, I reckon. Uh, anyway, of course, <laughs> this sort of power and and uh, responsibility doesn't come without its downfall. So watch the film if you want to see what happens, because honestly, I think a lot of us have seen it and probably can't tell you how it ends. <laughs> <laughs> I do know Robert I was just De Niro. thinking that. <laughs> I, do I was just Robert sitting here thinking, like, I've no, I know I've seen that, but I don't, <laughs> right. I'm not sure where, where it goes. Maybe on an airplane. <laughs> yeah, right. It, it's 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 a very good airplane flick. Um, but what I do want to point out is that this was actually an adaptation from a 2001 uh, novel called The Dark Fields by Irish writer Alan Glynn. Hmm. Uh, and I didn't it, know it was adapted. Which, yeah, it actually got re-released in March of the year that the film came out and retitled Limitless uh, just sure. to coincide I with the when they do release. that, actually. Yeah, me too. You know, just like own your roots. But anyway, that that book, if you want to give it a look, see and see how it compares to the movie that you can't remember. Again, it's called The Dark Fields by Alan Glynn. All right, everybody, that takes us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a lot of fun doing this and we hope you have fun listening, too. And if you do, would you take a moment to just rate and review this podcast? That would really help us out a lot. As always, we thank Dr. Blake Brandis for providing the music for Whiskey and the Weird. And Damien, if people are feeling social, where can they find us? Are you social? Are you? Well, capitalize on all those senses and carry yourself over to Twitter where you can find us at Whiskey Weird Pod, at Whiskey Weird Pod on Twitter. Or if you're the Instagrammable type and <laughs> visuals are more your jam, uh-huh. I don't know. I don't do it, huh? <laughs> we're at Whiskey and the Weird. 
at whiskey and the weird on Instagram. We spell our whiskeys with an E. We hope you do too. If not, don't be surprised if Ryan shows up, injects you or your family pet with uh, some super amplification. Whatever I've got in my shelf. Who knows? Yeah, pretty much. He's just going to reach behind him, grab some mysterious fluid, throw it in a syringe and pump your eyeballs full of it. But hopefully you'll be able to see. It'll probably just be scotch. That's how science works. Jess, we know we're not reading from Beyond Next. What are we reading next? We will get to that soon. Instead, we're going to go with the facts in the case of Mr. Valdemar by our good friend, Edgar Allan Poe. All right. Well, friends, that's the end for tonight. I'm Ryan Whitley. I'm Jessica Berg. And I'm Damian Smith. And together, we're Whiskey and the Weird. Thank you so much for joining us. Somebody send us home. As always, keep your friends through the ages and your creeps in the pages. Good night, everybody. Meow. <laughs> <laughs>